Hey everybody, what's going on? Install Education back for another year. Uh, we're going to start this year off right with uh, letting you save some money. So two of our favorite uh, people are the Core360 belt and Human Locomotion, which is Dr. Thomas Shout. So don't forget, if you use the code Gestalt for the Core360 belt, you get $5 off all belts except for the ohm track sensors. So Brett, what about what, what are some of the Michaud's favorite, uh, some of your favorite Michaud uh, gadgets? Well, I mean, he's got a he's got a trunk full of gadgets, but I think my my favorite one definitely would be the we I mean, we use the Topro quite a bit, mm-hmm. uh, the Topro, and then I think the Varus and Valgus Post have really given people like a nice option if they're not want to take that leap into like a customized orthotic to kind of um, you know a good option for the patient, but also for, to let them kind of like you know bring the power back to the clinician to kind of decide where to post it. And so I, I think those are the two probably ones of Tom's stuff that I love. And of course his tie, I can't get enough of his of his human locomotion. I mean the book is still to this day pure insanity. So. Beautiful. Yeah. Don't forget to use the code Gestalt on both those, the Core 360 belt, and then also Human Locomotion links are in all of our podcasts. And we hope you guys like today's episode. All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gestalt Education Show. Uh, today we are back for uh, round two with our guest today, Brett. So, uh, Dr. Dave King. So, you did such an amazing job last year at this time talking to us at the C course, uh, DNS C course, and then uh, last year you talked about femoral osteopathic impingement, labral pathology, kind of all those uh, the normal things that you see in the operating room. But then this year, what was awesome, you kind of flipped the script, uh, script on us a little bit. So you kind of talked about your failures and uh, not necessarily even your failures, but the patients that are difficult. People that you, uh, you may have trouble helping or that just complicate the case period. And uh, so I thought you did a great job, but do you want to just kind of uh, run through that list for us a little bit on uh, the the patients that are difficult or, or kind of those presentations that suck to, to walk into your office? Yes. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on again. First time was a blast and uh, I, I'm sure this is going to be even better. I am drinking some lovely champagne. Yep. Uh, Cheers. Cheers. Glorious. We're watching the uh, France Poland yep, World right. Cup and uh, wow, what a what a start to this Sunday. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> only good for It's only going downhill from here. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, anyways, so yeah, I, I think the official title was the female athletic hip what keeps me awake at night. Yeah. And and, and really it is. So now 16 years into practice and and you go from sort of having this I don't like god complex for this but you you have a very optimistic approach and feel that you're really going to help everybody and it there comes a point in your career where you have to stop and say all right where where are my failures you know and and whether that's you know a complete failure or that's somebody that just didn't didn't have as good an outcome as you'd hope to do. It's important. It's important to stop and, and look at that stuff. So, so I did a big data evaluation recently, looking at those in my practice, um, and found the list. Just kind of break it down. The people that struggle are are my female athletes and between thirteen and sixteen years of age. Um, specific sports were soccer and then dance, cheer. I throw gymnastics in there, but there just aren't a lot of. There aren't a lot of people in gymnastics right now, but it's a high, high concern for not doing really well. Patients that play year round competition. Um, we talked about 
um, club. Oh, club. Ver- yeah, club versus their high school sport. That was kind of a big one for us. And then was there another list? Of list? I can't remember what the other. If there was another one there. That's a pretty good start. Yeah, it was a good start. And um, yeah, we we were kind of diving into that in terms of what it is about it. And one of the things we got into was the year round. I, I brought up the example of gymnastics, right? So. You know, there, there are obviously the crazy parents who are doing, I think last year I even brought up baseball, literally baseball and mm-hmm. dance that people were just a little bit too psychotic about their kid, you know, mm-hmm. little, little Jimmy being the, the best <laughs> in the world. Um, but there's a lot of well-intentioned parents who, who, who are trying to do what's right for their kids. But a sport like gymnastics, you know, asking a, asking a gymnast who does complex movements that are, it's timing, it's strength, it's power, it's all of it and say, Hey, let's take three weeks or four weeks to rest. They might as well be done for the season. You know, yeah. the, the, what it's going to take them to get back. You know, I think I've heard at least one of my patients described, you know, every day I'm, every day I'm out is about a week of, of return wow. to get back. That was a, a pretty good gymnast of mine. Um, so that almost adds another complication in because they may be pushing harder to return. Yeah, correct. And- They're pushing harder, but yeah, and they just, they, you know, they just they would like to rest, but it means it's it's just difficult, you know. So that that's hard. And then the other is the big one that I get really outspoken about and aggressive is this tournament play, especially in soccer. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. the idea that we're sitting here watching the World Cup. I mean, it couldn't be any more apropos. But that you're you're now asking somebody to run. I mean, how many miles do these mm-hmm. kids run on it? Five games in a weekend. And it's like, I, yeah, well, I wonder why you're having hip pain. I mean, I, I think anybody without a hip issue potentially could feel their hips on that. So it's just really difficult that, that tournament play. Whereas it, like in high school sports and collegiate or even this professional level, you're training appropriately. You know, you have your training days, but then you're actually really only in that heavy competition, maybe twice a week, maybe at the worst three times a week. So... And you notice the significant difference you were talking about from when they just play high school soccer, which St. Louis has great uh, high school soccer, female soccer. So um, versus club. Versus club. So, I mean, is that message being well received? Are people listening to you or mixed bag? So so the poster. So first of all, I'm sure I preached in this last time I was here about the preoperative counseling, you know, really sitting down with with the, the kid and the parents, but much more the kids than the parents and really educating them on the whole process. But the failure rates, you know, the, this is even before I did the most recent data dump was, you know, 50% of my female soccer players in St. Louis got back to club play at a, at a high level and were happy. You know, mm-hmm. so a lot of them got back, but they just said, I'm just, this isn't where I want to be. I'm better than before surgery, but I just, this just doesn't feel great. It's like, I'm not, you know, I play on the weekend and then Monday and Tuesday, it's hard to sit through class. So anyways, but you have that conversation, but the success rate, the flip of that is that the success rate of those individuals who said, you know what, I'm going to take a pause on club, maybe take a year off, play my high school season. The success rates are huge. You can get back and you're like, wow, by the way, this is really fun. You know, I'm one of the best kids on the field. You know, um, there's camaraderie, and it's not quite as intense in my hips. Whoa, love it. sports cannot be fun. Wait. <laughs> yeah, no shit. God forbid we have a little bit of fun. 
That's great. <laughs> yeah. it's, I mean, it's true. So the other thing we talked about, um, even in our world, uh, dysplasia is very tricky for us to work with too. Because a lot of times you you might be dealing with um, other concomitant problems, like maybe loose connective tissue, things like that. Um, you you talked a little bit about, and it's not your forte. You say you refer out for the surgery on dysplasia. Um, but can you talk about like what that clinical presentation looks like, um, how it's different from femoral impingement, uh, the management of that? Yeah, so I'll lump the two together in terms of dysplasia and then just what we call version-related issues. Right. So dysplasia, you know, when I when I talk about dysplasia, we do in our world, it's we're talking truly about the socket. I mean, technically any malformation of the socket would be dysplasia, but when we talk about dysplasia, we're really talking about the socket doesn't form correctly. So you have less, less surface area, um, improper angles of the socket side so that you can't contain the femoral head as well. Um, the other part of that is versions, which is the, when the femur comes up and splits to the femoral neck, you either have, you know, a version, we'll, we'll call it upright or flat, and then we also have version in the frontal plane or the posterior plane. So anaversion would be the frontal plane, posterior would be retroversion. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're, they're, they're difficult. So a lot of times with dysplasia, you have vague type symptoms, achy, it, it's, it involves multiple areas of the hip joint. It's not the classic groin pain in the impingement position. Mm-hmm. It's sort of this nebulous pain. Um, and and it's tough to figure out exactly what that's coming from. A lot of times they have secondary soft tissue issues, you know, so they're coming to your office and you're like, well, I'm boy, they leave here and they feel great. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause you're managing those secondary soft tissue related issues, but then they try to get back into their activity or competition and they struggle again. You know, version is, is something that we're learning more about. I mean, really there's a Brian Kelly had an awesome study with some other guys in 2015, looking at retroversion and the failures in hip arthroscopy. And there's been, multiple studies since then, but from the clinical setting, really looking and what we talked about today was looking at versions. So seated 90 degree with the knee at 90 degrees and looking internal and external rotation and measuring the differences as well as in the Craig's test or laying prone and looking at it. Um, if you see more than a 20 degree discrepancy between internal and external rotation, that's a highly correlates with either increased version or decrease. So more anaversion or retroversion. And um, again, very subtle. The, the cam, what we talked about last time I was on, you know, femoral acetabular impingement, cam impingement with a labral tear is a lot, you know, my kids could diagnose that. Yeah. Flexing right. home run. Rota- it's a home run. I mean, it's really loss of favor, all those other things. That's pretty easy. The dysplasia and the versions are, are more difficult, but they are a huge component of why we have failures mm-hmm. is because we're trying to push the limits. You know, these athletes have given so much, they don't want to go through a bony corrective procedure. So we, we do everything we can on your end and my end to say, let's not operate. Let's keep them going there. But these really influence. They also have a big influence on when they do get to the point and have an arthroscopic surgery that they're at a high risk of, of, of having mediocre or less than ideal results. Hmm. Have you noticed, because it's kind of like the razor's edge, because 
uh, if you have dysplasia, the I guess the blessing of the dysplastic hip is that you have and you have a lot of range of motion, which can be beneficial for athletics. Whereas, like you have retroversion, femoral tibial impingement, you run out of hip motion, therefore it all gets funneled in the low back. Have you noticed that it, in a way it's kind of like a blessing and a curse that a lot of high level athletes in rotational sports might be using a little bit of their dysplasia to kind of give them more range of motion potentially? It's the New York School of Ballet. I mean, the, the number of dysplastic students that enter the New York School of Ballet, the premier in this country, I don't know if it's the world, but that's the majority of them have some form of dysplasia. Right. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of talent and strength and everything else. But, yeah, not having that acetabular coverage allows them to reach certain positions that the rest of us can't. Because they so, keep their spine neutral then, you know, absolutely. like instead of Yeah, so, the, so their form is beautiful, Right. Right. Whereas, I mean, throw somebody with a normal hip and a little cam bump, let them try to make those gorgeous, you know, ballet motions. <laughs> There's no way they right. can't do it. Yeah. They can't do it. You know, gymnastics is the same type of thing. Dance, cheer, all those things. So yeah, it's huge. And then you're, but then you're doing these high impact activities and it's just like, it's a blessing and a curse. Exactly. How, yeah. how you said. And you talked about the imaging too, is that uh, CT scan is the gold standard as far as measuring those things and, and seam version and dysplasia and stuff like that. Yeah. So, I mean, x-ray, simple x-rays are, you know, key for FAI and, and dysplasia really, but, um, MRI for looking for tears, but the, the CT scan really is the best thing to look for, for version studies. But, you know, frontline between chiropractics and athletic trainers and physical therapists, they're usually seeing these patients and touching them first and, and they're the ones that can really screen them and see if, if, if you have, you know, difference between internal, external rotation of, of 12, 15 degrees, the chances of you having something dramatic on your version studies is pretty low, you know? Sure. So, so really the screening part of it can, we don't want to just go around CTing every kid out there, you know, sure. unless you're doing a specific um, research project that's going to add to the medical lit literature in terms of, you know, in terms of evidence-based medicine, then, okay, that's okay. But me in the, in the private world, I don't want every kid coming in radiating that kid. But it, so it helps. It helps having that. It also helps just, it helps, I think, the, the athlete. A lot of time it's, it's confusion. You know, I can't tell you how many athletes I've, I've met, counseled, figured out, yeah, you've got some increased antiversion. You've got a tiny bit of hypermobility. Maybe we can make some modifications to your workouts. And that athlete can then mentally get back and play. Okay. And now they're, they're seeing you guys. They're seeing their Cairo. They're, they've got their trainers got some things they got to do. They have to skip a Wednesday practice and do a, you know, core strengthening video instead of pounding on their hip. A lot of runners this way, cross country, mm -hmm. but they're, once they know, then they're able to process it all and figure out a game plan to keep themselves going and avoid the knife. Right. You know, and that's, I mean, knowledge is power. What was that, G.I. Joe? Did I just quote G.I. Joe on your podcast? <laughs> that's, that's the first time. That's never going to happen again. That's the first time. That's a verse. Never forget your verse. <laughs> well, what about on a, um, like a plain view x-ray for, uh, like if you're looking at acetabular coverage, I mean, there's crossover signs and things like that. Although it's not the gold standard, is there something to be learned from a... Uh, AP X-ray of the of the hip or, or oh absolutely yeah okay. absolutely so what the problem is is most people it's like if you look at a if you look at a trauma center ER you know you'll get a they'll get CT scans of the head neck pelvis the whole thing there and they say no no fractures acute process you know 
normal. Well, they're not. They're just looking for, you know, deadly shit. Like yeah. stuff, stuff that's going to kill you overnight while you, while you sit in the ICU. But there's a lot of subtleties on it. A lot of times, you know, a non-hip specific, even orthopedic surgeon, they'll look at a, a basic AP pelvis and they will say, oh, it looks normal. You know, there's no arthritis. I don't see anything. But there's there's so many subtleties. I mean, it's, it's almost rare that if you have a guy like myself or, you know, Philippon, Kelly, all these other guys out there who, who do a lot of this stuff, you know, there are very, very rarely there are they perfectly normal x-rays. There's always some subtleties to it. So you right. can gain a lot, a lot of information just from a plain x-ray. I think the one thing you said today that really surprised me when you were talking about your buddy, Dr. Kelly, is that um, in surgery for dysplasia, they actually change the version they essentially break the hip. I, yeah. I don't know if that's the right term, but yeah, they, they do an osteotomy. So they actually, it's a controlled cut and then they actually rotate and change the version, which, which is, is super invasive. And there's, you know, there's, there's no way that I can downplay that. I'm about to put my son through that at some point. Um, but it, it, it solves the primary problem. You know, mm-hmm. I, I used to talk about it a long time ago and I, I brought it up in the, talk today when I used to give a lot of the talks when I was teaching about pincer and cam and, and say, you know, make sure that you are fixing the primary issue. Meaning if the, if the primary issue is a cam lesion on the femur, don't go shaving a bunch of the acetabulum or socket to try to make up for that. That's not a good idea. Conversely, you know, don't do a massive divot in the in the femoral head neck junction if they really got pincer impingement go go to where, where the problem is so i mean nobody wants to talk about f- breaking a femur and turning a femur it's just sort of from a from a baseline parents look at you like you have two heads you know um <laughs> even i look at my patients and i was like i can't believe i'm sending them to do this i just feel terrible for them um but you got to fix the primary problem yeah we talked in uh fai how you know, if we if we were trying to find the etiology or the cause of the problem, last time we, we had you on, we were talking about early rotational sports where you're literally in range of motion, just butting your femur up against your acetabulum. You have Wolf's Law, Huter Volkman, where you basically are laying down bone because you're, you know, the cam thing. Now, on the dysplastic hip, do you feel like that's just purely genetic? Or is there a way to get there? Is there what's a pathway to get a dysplastic hip? So current consensus is it's congenital and it's it's congenital. And the question is, is are there things that happen in life that, that allow it to correct itself? For example, you know, you get a dysplastic baby and there are some bracing type things you can do to drive the femoral head into the socket that helps the socket, you know, form correctly. Sure. Uh, Yeah. Uh, um, So, so there's definitely things you can manipulate. The problem is, you know, is, figuring that out at the right time when they, when they have the, when they're that malleable as a baby to, to correct it, you know, most yeah. of the time in my world, without not being a pediatric ortho guy or being a pediatrician, it's all, they're, they're too far into the process to really make a big correction there. Sure. And it's kind of like your car. You don't really go preventatively except for an oil change to see like, Oh, how am I doing? I think the human body, we wait for things to kind of break down. Yeah, then we, but it's a funny thing. I, I, I this is a, I love to make one controversial statement, but let's I, go, baby. Come well, on. No, I mean, so last I, time it was dancing. Yeah. yeah well, right. it was dancing. You canceled yourself on the well, yeah, dancing. I I dancers, they all hate me. All, all the, all the dance studios hate me now, but whatever. I can live with it. Um, 
So I, I, I x-rayed my I five kids and I'm, I'm, I x-ray them at different intervals, looking for dysplasia, looking for OCD lesions in the knee, looking for congenital stenosis, something in the, in the cervical spine that might, you know, lead them to be a paraplegic on the field. I mean, I'm, I'm and in pu- public health, you know, we always talk about public health. Why do we give vaccines the way we give vaccines? Well, it's because it's the, why do we stack them on top of each other? It's because how do you get the most number of people vaccinated appropriately? It's you, this is in public health. This is how you do it, right? Yeah. You know, you could easily spread your kid out and say, we're going to, we're going to do each, each one at this, at this time. But then obviously people won't follow up. They won't follow up yeah. and their kids don't want to do it. And it's mm-hmm. all those reasons there. You know, the other one is the, the other one I tell all the time is I, in med school, there's three, three gals that I know keep in touch with some wit who went into OBGYN and all three of them had elective C-sections for all of their children. Wow. <laughs> and it's like, Hmm, you know, we, 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 there's a public health kind of, this is how we tell the general population to do it. And, and then this, <laughs> this is, is what we do ourselves. <laughs> yeah. This is what we do, actually do for ourselves. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. the, the reality is, is a lot of the hip related issues. There are time points where you could make changes and help it, but you know, the body's amazing, you know, mm-hmm. torsion, Andiversion, femoral version, they're supposed to, like we talked about today, you know, all of those things sort of, they do naturally ebb and flow throughout your development. We've seen those patterns there. So it's not like we want to do anything crazy and intervene too early, but, you know, but at the same time, there probably are those patients that we've missed the chance along the way to fix them. So, sure. yeah, with regenerative medicine, I know you're, you're a proponent. Um, what, how do you use regenerative medicine? Obviously in St. Louis, we have blue tail and, and other people that are doing the service. Um, you know, the, the things we hear are PRP, stem cell, prolotherapy. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you just send people to the people that are doing regenerative medicine and they make a decision on what they're going to do? Or do you have like an opinion on what, what's good, what's not good? Yeah, we'll, well, we'll talk about the hip, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, I mean, I use it for all different parts, but the, so I, I have a, um, I definitely send them if I sort of have a target issue. For example, you know, for example, sixteen-year-old ice hockey goalie, massive cam lesion. He's hammering his hip into the you know into traditional butterfly position. Develops a large labral tear and a you know thirty degrees, thirty percent of his acetabular reticular cartilage. He's got a chondral flap. Mm. That's a mess, mm. right? So, um, I, I won't. In that situation, I won't literally cut out the damaged cartilage, but I also know that it doesn't have a great chance of healing. It's very hard to do microfracture in the hip. There's just, it's a tough problem, right? So, so I'll, I'll fix the labrum. I'll remove the cam lesion. Traditionally, I'll, I'll use this. Arthrex has this thing called a power pick, which is this mini microfracture device that can try to help create some, some channels in the, in the acetabulum. And then I will send that to the blue tail guys to be fed stem cells post-surgical, right? Um, just the the concept being is is how how you know we got a tough problem you know mechanically I've fixed what I can how do we how do we th- try to throw the kitchen sink at it to get that thing to stabilize and potentially do well so that that's a wow, specific okay. that's a specific yeah. so you're using regenerative medicine after your surgery mm-hmm. kind of oh, oh wow yeah. it is your goal. I, mean, I, I used to I used to do actually I would do, I would do a I would actually do an injection at the time of surgery but in my opinion you're getting enough you're getting enough blood. And potentially stem cells through the little mini microfracture, and there's chaos with fluid, and there, you're, I'm injecting numbing agent. I just feel like you're wasting the stem cells at that 
immediate time that you're okay. generating enough. And then and the idea would be to feed it. And occasionally, the, the, based on the size of the lesions, sometimes they'll feed it with PRPs. A lot of times, you know, if you're in a joint, it's traditionally, I'm by no means a biologics expert by <laughs> any means, but, you know, stem cells tend to tend to thrive in oxygen poor environments, which would be joints, joints yeah. versus, you know, the lateral elbow where you have a oxygen rich environment. They do better with platelet rich plasma, that type of stuff. So, so that's, so we'll typically send for stem cells for cartilage type issues, but, um, iliopsoas tendonitis, um, thin anterior capsules in females who have some, maybe a slight bit of hypermobility. I think regenerative in the capsular tissues to get them to scar and tighten up. That's a great, that's a great application for it. And that's your goal with it would be the scarring aspect of it. I, I mean, is there any anti-inflammatory component to that as well? Oh yeah, or, okay. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they have, well, PRP itself is actually stimulating inflammation just sure. in a controlled environment. Um, stem cells into a joint tends to create a more neutral environment, if you will. But yeah. And, and I don't know, we'll, we'll have to see where it all goes, but we're just, we're trying to take the data of, Hey, these patients don't do particularly well. How do we, how do we try to improve those outcomes? I mean, isn't that, that's, that's our goal. I think you made a really good point today about um, exclusionary criteria for you with the injection under ultrasound. Like you kind of definitively know who's going to be, you know, you're setting yourself up for success by, you know, if they pop or, or are positive or negative on that, can you speak on, you know, over the years, how you've developed this little protocol that you, you've yeah, bought into and for sure, yeah. for sure. So, so we, we call it that we call it the final step before you're indicated for surgery, which is the diagnostic injection. And it's actually interesting. So there are peer reviewed studies out there that show that the response to the injection before hip arthroscopy can vary, but still have successful outcomes. Okay. I say bullshit definitively say bullshit on that one. Yeah. So I've looked at my first thousand patients. We, we collected all this prospective data and looked at, you know, post-surgical data and everything. And, you know, the vast, the patients that did not respond to a preoperative diagnostic injection did not dramatically improve with surgery. Mm. That, that's my practice. It has been for 16 years, four to 5,000 hip arthroscopies. I mean, that, that's the fact. So the concept of the, of the injection is this, if your labral tear is the source of your pain, we're, we're going to temporarily shut that off and determine if your pain goes away. So patient comes in, they, they've got a, they've got their labral tear, FAI, they've failed all the normal criteria and everything. And they're indicated for surgery. We will say, okay, how's your day going? Is this a good day, bad day, mediocre day for your pain? And if it's a bad day and they're doing very poorly, we'll do it right then. If not, we'll send them away and we'll say, go get your hip inflamed and pissed off and then come back and see us. And then our ultrasound in the office, we'll do an injection with lidocaine and marcaine, two numbing agents. Lidocaine acts very quickly. Marcaine takes a little longer, but it lasts longer. And we are looking for a definitive resolution of their normal daily pain that they have that's limiting them to determine if fixing the labrum is actually going to fix their problem. And you'll see a variety of things. You know, people that have hip pain, some back pain, a little bit of thigh pain, all this kind of stuff, you know, you'll, you'll get the absolute home run injection. Wow. That's amazing. Tear of joy. Like if I, Oh, if I could just feel like this, this would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. You're like, great done. We're good. We're <laughs> see, you, see you Wednesday. You'll get the other one where they, where they have, you know, they, these tend to be my kind of more my age patients. I'm 47 now, more my, my weekend warriors, you know, and they'll be like, I got a back and this and other, and you'll do the injection with like, Oh, my hip, that feels great. My groin pain's gone. My motion's better. And they're like, my back, didn't really take my back pain away at all, but 
you know, this all feels amazing. And a lot of those times you, you'll, you'll, you go, okay, great. We're going to fix that pain that went away with this surgery. Then we're going to see how much that was affecting your back. We may or may not fix oh, your back pain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We may or may not fix your back pain, you know, but, but now you get a snapshot of what you know will go away, what might, might or might not. Okay. Go away. So someone, and, then, and you might get somebody who it, it's a labral tear, it's FAI, it looks at everything, and they and you do the injection and they get no response. You gotta go deep, brother. You gotta go figure out, okay, I I'm not convinced. You know, I gotta go figure out what this is. Well, that's my next question. So if they don't get that positive outcome from the injection, then are you looking like more kinetic chain, like this is potentially coming from the low back, or could it the hips still be the problem? It's just not the labrum or Exactly. Yes. So both, both of those are perfect. So yes, it can be, you know, referred from the back is usually pretty obvious to us based on dermatomes and other kind of provocative, provocative things. We do see a lot of um, athletic pubalgia or sports hernia type oh, yeah. stuff that can cross over pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Or yes, you can have FAI that is, you know, triggering iliopsoas tendinosis or issues with the reflective head of the rectus or some other soft tissue structure that can just kinetically be be affected kinetic chain um but yeah but you're like okay but it's not the labrum like like just the answer you know maybe the answer is fixing the the cam impingement but again my outcomes were are terrible on those patients that don't mm-hmm. see a response from that you know and if, if you're in blue collar america and we want to use dave king how much does it cost for somebody to send a patient to you for this um ultrasound injection like is that is this is like Two thousand dollars? Is this five hundred dollars, or what's a? Well, I mean, it's it's if you have it, it's routinely covered under insurance. But no, I mean, lidocaine and marcaine. Well, lidocaine's hard to find right now because of supply chain, but it's cheap. Okay, a couple hundred bucks max. Yeah. Right. So that's a, that's a no brainer. Yeah. A well, yeah, and it's just it's the information is so it's it's amazing, and we we just have a lot of well, I'll get a lot of patients sent, tons of patients from back specialists, including back surgeons in town, spine surgeons around St. Louis, the metro area, even some of the the smaller areas. Just to that, they say, hey, can you rule the hip out for me? I'm dealing with this back issue. I've got multiple discs. I've got stuff. We're doing, you know, we're doing selective nerve roots. We're doing epidurals. We're doing you know, all these different kind of things. And I was just trying to, but, but there's so much crossover with the hip. I can't quite figure out if this is the hip. And so they will literally get sent to us just to rule out the hip, you know, and they'll yeah. come in and, and, and it's for the diagnostic injection. So, but we'll look at their hip, x-ray, examine them, kind of put our two cents in and we'll do that injection. And, you know, we've had patients who've had uh, three level lumbar fusions and, you know, eight years of, eight years of treatments and <laughs> you don't want, holy F, yeah, it was you're, my hip the whole time. Well, watch what you tell them. Oh, yeah. yeah, you almost feel bad saying that, like, yeah. shit. Yeah. It wasn't, well, it wasn't but, a complete waste, but. I will. but. <laughs> well, but I think now, I think now a lot of the guys, there are, there are plenty of good, awesome spine surgeons who now have figured this out. And they're like, wait, time out. I want to do this first. Yeah. You know, no, last thing I want to do is last thing I want to do is another failed back surgery like that. I know. And I mean, they don't want to manage that. Nobody wants to manage no. that. There's no dollar in the world that's worth at least if you're, if you're a reasonable human and you're an ethical doctor, can you imagine giving people a failed back when you know, <sighs> when you know it was something else? You just, you know, you wouldn't do it. That's tough. What's the weirdest? So or- they never knew. So, so they didn't know. You know, they were, a lot of them are just, they, they think they're doing the right thing. Yeah, this sort of fits. Yeah, they, they sort of got better with this epidural injection. You know, sometimes they're not that definitive. The hip, though, injection, that's definitive. That's right. Either it takes it away or it doesn't, doesn't take it away. What is the weirdest, like, sclerotogenous referral pattern you've seen 
that wasn't so straightforward to where like you did your procedure. And I mean, cause we, the debate rages on, I mean, depending on who you talk to, does the hip refer below the knee? I, I don't see that very often, but I mean, you hear people talk about it. So like, have you had any crazy cases where like you fix their hip and you're like, wow, that fixed. Well, so, so yes, I mean, we've had a, but it, but it, it sort of, when you Monday morning, when you Monday morning quarterback did, it sort of makes sense. You know, it was somebody that had ridiculous, they had clearly had groin hip related issues, limited Faber motion. Like they were locked in big cam lesion, labral tear, no arthritis, did their injection, a lot of the pain went away, but they were having truly ridiculous down to the leg, uh, down to the foot, you know, numbness there. Saw, you know, they had a disc at the area, but they weren't really responding there, but they had so much. And we just, it was like, both of them were driving them nuts. Actually, at the time, the hip was keeping them from sleeping. Okay. So they were probably in their early 40s. Fixed the hip, rehab the hell out of them. And then, you know, really put them somebody with a, with somebody who really understood hip and back. And then they got, you know, they, 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 they had a, a good Cairo as well. And who just was kind of watching this very, very closely along. And sure enough, all the symptoms resol- resolved. And really the, they did a follow-up MRI later and the, uh-huh. the disc had, you know, the disc had, disc had retracted and, and healed itself, if you will. Right. Um, it wasn't big bone spurs and stuff, but, but that was one that I really didn't think was going to do much. But when the back, when the stress came off the back, it just let it, you know, mm-hmm. it let everybody else do their work and help them heal themselves. Sure. Plus I, plus I put them through, you know, her, I put them outrageous core strengthening programs. Smart. I tell everybody you're going to fit, you'll, you'll, you'll leave with stronger core than you started with, unless they're professional hockey players, those guys. Yeah. What a good message. <laughs> uh, yourself, uh, when we had Dr. Andrews on, you know, what what can you learn from your failures? I mean, that was basically how you started your lecture today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about that because I think, you know, a lot of people, especially early on in your career, all you want to do is kind of grandstand your great cases. Your What do you learn from your failures? How do those keep you up at night? How does that make you better? Well, it, it makes you kind of go back to the basics. You know, I, we, were, we were talking right before we started here, you know, that when when, you, when when this meeting was coming up and you're like, hey, can you come out again? It was, it was sort of work administrative stuff, life, family. And I was, you gave me it, hockey excuse. My, my yeah. bra- my, and, I, and I didn't know at the time the hockey schedule, yeah. but I, that my brain was just sort of in a, uh, you know, but then I was like, you know what? I need to, I need to do this and I want to do this. And then you sort of get back to the basics. So, so number one, we're, we're in this for patient care. We're, we're if you didn't, you didn't become a doctor and, and a surgeon and do this to help make people better than there's something wrong with you, you know? Um, so it, it just, it kind of makes you reset and then it makes you a scientist again. Right. So, so one of the examples I, Oh, that was the last thing on the list of my failures. And I didn't say it was mental health, anxiety yeah, issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a big key that we found for that. You know, and it says, boy, I'm, I'm the farthest thing from a, from a specialist in that world. But boy, it made you start thinking about it. Like, is that is that something that says don't operate on that person? No, because a lot of, part of their mental health problems and anxiety might be from their pain. You know, yeah, their neurosis is. Yeah, yeah it's so, so it's it's like a catch twenty two. You know, but but it, it, you're like, okay, we need. To, I need to find the people to help me work on this. What do I do? And I've found some ways just myself on how to encourage those patients, and I approach them differently in their post operative settings. More of an encouraging person versus you know, I can be a real hard ass 
post-surgical if I don't think you're doing your stretching exercises for your shoulder or, you know, some, or if somebody's doing too much too early, you know, so like if that patient is doing a lot, they need to, right? So they're, they're doing more stuff. They're, they're more active on their feet. They're going out with friends. They're doing things there. You know, a lot of times I might want to chastise somebody and tell them to chill out. And that person, you're like, okay, I gotta, I gotta have kid gloves on this. I gotta talk about how I want you to be active, but, but be smart about it. So it just, it makes you kind of think about things more. We're still looking at some of these other biologics. It's very easy for the orthopedic surgeon. You know, we've looked at, we've looked at incorporating that into our own practice, you know, just as another one site practice there. And you, you realize that you don't have time to give it what it needs. Whereas Mm -hmm. like all my boys and and girls at Lutail Medical are just so damn good, you know, and they have such a scientific approach to it that I'd rather just collaborate. Farm that out. Yeah. Yeah. But it makes you think, yeah. Makes you think who needs that? Who needs that? What am I missing? You know, the version stuff. Thanks. You know, thankfully there's, it's a small world. The hip arthroscopy community is really small, even internationally, but, um, it kind of makes us all think and talk to each other. Hey, you know, I, I just saw, just looked at my failures. <laughs> Here's what I'm seeing. You yeah. Know? Right. Yeah, yeah. And when we saw like when Brian Kelly and, and his guys showed that, that retroversion is a big killer, but that excessive, very excessive anniversion can also be a bit of a problem there. And just so, it's just, it's, it's fun and it, and it makes you, it keeps you kind of humble and interested. Yeah. Right. If everything was a home run. It'd be it, so damn boring. It'd get it? a little boring. Yeah. Like, he knows the story. My, my first professional athlete, he ends up having femoral tabular impingement. So he <laughs> ends up going to uh spring training. And uh, so, I mean, I've seen him six times. He's referred to me because at the time I'm a big ART person, yeah, things like that. I, love I don't help this guy one bit. He goes to spring training and, uh, you know, he, maybe he's doing a little bit better. And then I saw, so I'm just kind of, you know, young, dumb clinician. I'm like, yeah, how's everything going in spring training? He's like, actually, I'm in a veil right now. I'm about to go under surgery. So, and, and femoral tabular impingement, at least in our world, in the physical therapy world, was not really being described at that yeah. point. So uh, he's like, yeah, I, I did surgery and Philippon did a surgery. Yeah. And uh, he's like, I'm doing, I'm doing amazingly well. And I had like, oh, it was so painful. Like for me, you know, like just the thought that I, and I mean, to my credit, no one was really talking about, but it still, it just hurts so bad. And uh, yeah, and I mean, and I still have open conversations with this, with this player about like, you know, that whole, that whole path. But I think there is so much to be said with like the, the young clinicians out there about, um, you know, as you move along, you learn from your failures. And because of that, it makes you better. Like one of our mentors, Dr. Levitt here, he always said, you know, at the end of my career will be my best treatment because it's got 70 years of experience built into, you know, my hands or my eyes, whatever, whatever it might be. So, yeah, 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 I I couldn't agree more. As we wrap it up, I got one, like just side question that I've I've been wanting to ask you. Um, One thing that's really difficult for us to treat is OCD, whether it's elbow, knee, hip, wherever. And it seems like the surgeons don't want to do surgery on it at all. So, which tells me that like, it's not a home run for surgery. Uh, A lot of times it's just like patients and things like that. Do you have any ideas on like those real difficult osteochondritis dissecating cases that? Yeah. Well, I mean, the elbow is a nightmare, right? So accessing it, you know, you almost have to retro drill them. And if if you're going to do something surgical to them. And so when you think about it, it's the, the, you have this beautiful cartilage (laughs) and you just have this bone Island underneath it. That is, loose typically when they hurt they're loose but anything we're going to do is likely going to potentially violate that cartilage and it's just 
it's just you just don't want to do that, I, you right? Know? But I have a run, I, you know, and, and they're funny. They come in waves. You know, a lot of times you get them and you modify their activities for a little bit and they do fine. They're good. I, I have a recently good, good friends of ours and I just had to have their son last year and drill his, but he's done great with from it, but it's just, they're just sort of terrifying cases. They can go, they can turn horribly bad. You know, if you're going to have to put a compression screw in, in one of them, the bone can disintegrate. Like you, there aren't a lot of surgeries in orthopedics, you know, spine, there's some of them where you can really do a lot of damage and make them worse. <laughs> In the sports world, OCD, that's one of them. Yeah. That's one yeah. of them. You get it wrong, technically wrong, or you do the wrong thing. It's just it's just rough. So that's yeah. every time you're walking into one of them, they're you're a yeah. little bit sweaty. Yeah. I mean I don't I don't get it I don't get nervous <laughs> for almost anything anymore. Surgically, OCD, yep. Yeah, you're yep. taking a little extra time and Yep. Yep. Carrying the ACL graft, the, the auto ACL graft from the prep table back to the patient. That's number one biggest stress. Um, bleeding around a distal biceps repair, that starts to get your heart rate up. <laughs> Hamstring used to get me my heart rate up, not anymore, because I do so many of them. And then OCD would be on that list of just, oh. Yikes. Yeah. 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 So there's no, no I'm good not, clinical I'm not overly religious, or... but I make the sign of the cross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no good clinical pearls on that. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, no, I mean, I mean, I think there, there's, but you, you picked up on it. I mean, it, it's your observation that yeah, no, nobody's, none of those surgeons are rushing in to fix this stuff. What does that, what does that tell you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right, right. Do yeah. you think that, um, like if, if we're just extremely patient on that, like let's take your, your buddy's son that you're talking about, like if he just waited two years, nope. No, it'll just, it'll still no. There's certain ones that need to be fixed. Okay. Yeah. So you have to. Yeah. I mean, they. This is a family that did the regional six weeks off. Did it. And he even did. He did it limited weight bearing for for several weeks, and then did a very slow progressive course back, and it just wouldn't it wouldn't stabilize and it wouldn't heal. So, right. But it, but I didn't have to do something crazy compression. It was I just had to drill drill a few holes in it and stimulate some some healing across the thing, and he, it did great biologics at all in those cases for sure if you could i don't know i don't know exactly how you yeah no. distribute them yet you know i mean i mean I, I would say the ones that you have to actually sometimes you have to actually hinge them up and kind of get some basically calcified bone or whatever off the back side of the lesion then put it back down and then put compression screws in it i mean flooding that thing with stem cells would never be a bad idea yeah you know, maybe not necessary but not a bad idea yeah, Maybe that would be a time that you would do it in surgery, or would you still probably refer out for no, that? No, I would. I would probably do it in surgery. I, no, yeah. I would in surgery. I would. I'd actually try to inject it in the backside of it too. But, but you know, the one beauty of bone is if it goes smoothly. I mean, bone heals the bone amazingly well. Right, right? It loves to heal together. Right. <laughs> so the thing is, if you if you but the you're you're looking at this piece and you're like, okay, it's going to be unstable. The knee specifically, it's pretty large. <sighs> I got to hinge this thing. I got to prepare the backside, put it back down, hope it fits like a puzzle, then put the compression screws in. There's just so oh, many stages well. for it to go fucking <laughs> wrong. Yeah, right. like, like you go to hinge it and it breaks off and it's floating around the knee and you're like, oh, shit balls. <laughs> so it's just, it's a, it's a, it's just so many things can go awry. <laughs> I did have one question. Have you? Is there any case right now that you're doing an open uh, hip surgery or are you all arthroscopic? Oh, yeah. I, so I used – it's funny you asked that. So glute stuff. So this isn't so much as the younger athlete, but this is more our, of our older athletes. But the um, glute medius tears, mm -hmm. trochanteric stuff, uh, greater trochanteric stuff. So I used to teach um, courses through Arthrex and, and other <laughs> – Anna and stuff on how to do 
do that procedure endoscopically. So, so how to put the anchors in and put the, put the sutures in. But then I did a sort of head to head comparison in my own practice and did mini opens and my mini opens just did so much better. So okay. I, I still, I fixed the glute meads and trochanteric stuff through, through a mini open and the well, hamstrings. Some well, guys are doing endoscopic hamstring repairs. It's such a cosmetic issue making that incision there. And it's just a hard space to be in the sciatic nerve is kind of important for your function of your leg. You know? so, <laughs> that's what you don't want to mess up. Yeah. You don't, you don't want to be sitting down there with your camera and your, and your metal spikes going, where am I? <laughs> is that the hamstring? T- oh God, that's the sciatic nerve. So, so guys do it. I mean, there's a lot of great surgeons, but I, 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 I prefer to just make a little four centimeter incision, get down there that way. <laughs> cool. Nice. Love it, man. What a great talk. Uh, Appreciate your friendship as always and your, oh. your work. And uh, uh, we'll cheers again. Uh, we'll meet you back here in a year. Thanks for the buzz. Appreciate <laughs> you guys. If you're in the Midwest, this is your guy, David King. Yep, yeah. absolutely. So uh, thanks again for your expertise and uh, for educating us. And uh, I guess we're going to get back to the course, Brett. Yep. All right, guys. Have a great day and uh, good luck with patience. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gestalt Education Show. Uh, if you liked it, share it subscribe to it, uh, send it to your friends, send it to someone that needs to hear this message. Uh, we really want everyone to be able to, to tune in and, and get the, the best clinical advice that they can, which uh, we're hoping that we're giving to you with these special guests. So um, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us, or if you have any suggestions on upcoming uh, conversations, let us know. Uh, for a list of our upcoming courses, we're adding them all the dang time. So go to gestaltedu.com, click on courses, and they'll all be right there for you. All right, have a good day.